and we are live good evening and good day everyone it's great to see you all again welcome to episode 7 of the ask abhijit show today we are discussing a very interesting topic we are discussing history with connection to india but it's about india's influence outside india's natural geographical boundaries so that's a that's something that's not really discussed much and uh, the people of india aren't taught about this because it's not really uh, these matters are not covered in our history textbooks so we grow up with this uh, with a certain idea of india and the idea of india is that india is a nation that has suffered a lot of invasions india is a defeated nation and india has absorbed a lot of foreign influences and foreign culture and uh, it is because of all of these foreign influences that india is the modern nation that it is today and we should be thankful to all of these foreign influences for making us for giving us this uh, modern nation and and saving us from being backward and regressive and primitive so this is the idea of india that is promoted by our education system by our textbooks by our establishment the government the media everything that you see is about this specific idea of india and this is absolutely incorrect because india has ha- exerted an immense amount of influence beyond its geographical boundaries for thousands of years india has throughout its history been a net exporter of culture and other things as well so that is what we are going to discuss today it's all about india's influence abroad so i have selected a bunch of your questions some very interesting questions i have got a lot of interesting questions and i have selected some questions from your comments from your questions that are mostly representative of the questions that everybody has asked so let's get into it right away let me start with question number 1 so question number 1 is if india's culture if indian culture sanatan dharma is so old then why is it not spread far from the indian subcontinent so this is a very common uh, belief among the people of india that india's culture is confined to india and that to confined to its current uh, geographical boundaries and india has never had any influence abroad but that is absolutely not the case india has had like i said a great deal of influence however we don't see that influence very clearly because it is now it has taken other shapes and forms for example we consider buddhism to be now kind of in a way an eastern religion eastern asian religion it is more of a religion that's more prevalent in china and japan and korea etc most people in india don't even look upon buddhism much as an indian religion as part of the dharmic uh, as part of the dharmic umbrella of religions the truth is that buddhism is very much part of hinduism so india has if you just look at that the buddhist influence then india has influenced the whole of eastern asia and also northern asia central asia etc and india had has had a great deal of influence westwards as well and those cultural footprints are still there but we are not able to understand them we are not able to recognize them for being what they are as being a uh, part of indian culture and being the remnants and evolved remnant remnants of indian culture and they are present everywhere in plain sight but they look very different they look foreign now these indian influences and that's why we don't recognize them so i am going to go more in detail about all these matters 
and that will hopefully cover everything that this question asks. So let's go into question number two. So this is a question that no one has asked because probably nobody knows about this. So this is a question I have put here myself. So the question is, is there an ancient Indian influence in Australia? So when we think about Australia, we think about, especially when Indians think about Australia, we think about cricket. We think about the Australian cricket team and we think about the people of Australia as being European in origin and essentially English speaking in, in origin. So from the British islands. So that's how we see the people of Australia. The fact is that the European presence in Australia dates back to the 1780s or thereabouts, plus or minus 10-15 years. Okay, So that's where in, uh, European influence in Australia begins. That's just how many years ago? That's like 250 years ago or 300 years ago at most. For most, for the entirety of its history, Australia has been home to the indigenous Australian people, the Australian Aboriginal people who have been present in Australia for at least 60,000 years. So these Australian Aboriginal people are the true natives of Australia. They are the true, true owners of that land, of that nation, of that, of that continent. And after the European occupation of Australia, the Australian Aborigin, Aboriginal people were deprived of their rights. They were marginalized. And uh, essentially, they were reduced to the margins of society. Even today, they don't have too many rights. They live on the fringes of society. They have terrible conditions. They have suffered lots of atrocities for centuries. But these Australian Aborigines are the true natives of Australia. Now, if we look at the genetics of the Australian Aboriginal people, then we find a very interesting change around 5,000 years ago. So between 5,000 and 4,500 years ago, a new genetic signature uh, entered the Australian Aboriginal lineages. And this is an Indian genetic signature. So about 5,000 to 4,500 years ago, the Australians the Australian Aboriginal people came in contact with Indians who had somehow managed to reach Australia. So let us take a look at the distance between India and Australia. Uh, this here is India and Australia is all the way far to the south. That is thousands of kilometers. So how would Indians have reached Australia 5,000 years ago? So we're talking about the Harappan era of Indian civilization. That's when this contact happened. And, and just to clarify, before I go back into the map, to clarify today, the people, the indigenous people of Australia have about 10 to 12% of Indian genetics. So if you examine their DNA, about 10 to 12% of it is Indian in origin. And this change happened around 5,000 to 4,500 years ago. And other changes also happened at that time. The Australian wild dog, which is called the dingo, also appears first for the first time in the Australian fossil record at the same time, around 5,000 years ago. And if you look at this dog, the Australian dingo, it looks just like the Indian dog, the standard issue Indian dog that you find on every street corner in India. The brownish, yellowish dog, medium-sized, very intelligent. That is exactly what the Australian dingo is. So this DNA influx happened and the Australian dingo also appeared 
at the same time and at the same time new tools have appeared in australian in the australian fossil and archaeological record which were not present before that time so new tools new technology also appeared around this time so there is unmistakable and undeniable hard evidence that indians traveled all the way to australia four and a half or five thousand years ago and they assimilated in the australian population left behind their genetics and their descendants are alive all across australia today and the other thing to note is that the Indian migrants to Australia did not attempt to impose Indian culture and languages upon the Australian people because you see none of that in the Australian languages or culture today. So they harmoniously assimilated among the indigenous Australian people. Now let's again go back to the map. So take a look at how far Australia is from India. So if you can see the pointer of my mouse, they would uh, the people the indians who went there would either have had to cross the indian ocean by sea which is an which is an incredible naval journey or they would have had to go by foot or by other means from from present day myanmar to thailand to malaysia jump across the ocean the seas to indonesia through various islands and then cross over from papua new guinea or from other parts of indonesia into northern australia so either way, it's an incredible journey. And we know that the people of ancient India were, were great seafarers. They had great naval, naval technology. The Rig Veda, the world's oldest literature, which is around 8,000 years old at least, it makes references to ships with a, a hundred oars. And we know very clearly that Indians had been traveling across the seas for a very long time. So it is not surprising to me that, in, that ancient Indians were able to make this voyage, this naval voyage all the way to Northern Australia and they have spread their genetics there. So that is the story of the ancient Indian influence in Australia. It must have been an incredible journey. There's a story that we have lost. There's a piece of history, a monumental piece of history that is now lost to us and we can use archaeology and genetics to reconstruct what happened, but it clearly happened. Indians went all the way to Australia almost 5,000 years ago. So that is the story of the ancient Indian influence in Australia 5,000 years ago. I don't think anyone knows about this because we are not taught about this in our education system. Let's go to the next question. So this is again a question that uh, Basically, no one asked, but I. it is important that I put it here so that uh, this information goes out. How did, it's not how did Indian influence in Australia, was there Indian, ancient Indian influence in Africa? So that is the question. Now, uh, let me show you some images quickly. I'm going to share a screen. So the thing is this, the fact is this, that uh, if you look at the, people and culture of Eastern Africa, then you see a great deal of uh, Indian influences there. Take a, take a look at this. These are the natives, present day natives of Eastern Africa. It's either Somalia or Sudan. And these ladies are wearing their indigenous native dress, which looks like the indigenous native dress of that Indian ladies wear. It looks exactly like the sari. And the textiles are again, extremely similar, right? So that is one. And 
take a look at this. This is most likely Somalia or Sudan again. So these ladies are wearing their native dresses. First of all, we can't even tell whether they are Indian or African. They look just like Indians, right? And the dresses are very similar to the dresses that ladies wear in Gujarat, in Western India. So that is another example of how, how Indian culture, India has a definite influence in Eastern Africa. Right? So, okay, let me go back to this. So, so that's the thing. So if you look at Africa today, Eastern Africa, uh, starting from the Horn of Africa, Djibouti, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, all the way down to Kenya and Tanzania, Zanzibar, etc. We will see unmistakable signs of Indian influence there. We know that Gujarati traders and, and traders from Kerala and uh, southern parts of India have been traveling there for centuries. We know that Vasco da Gama was able to discover India because an Indian uh, merchant uh, guided him back all the way to India to the port of Kolikode, right? So Indians have been there for several centuries at the very least. But if you look at how deeply Indian culture has imbued itself, infused itself in the local culture there, in the dress, in, in, in the way they dress themselves, the textiles that, that they have, which are very similar to Gujarati textiles. And even if you look at their facial features, they look like Indians. So there is clearly intermingling, genetic intermingling and very ancient genetic intermingling between the people of India and the people of Eastern Africa. Now, nobody has bothered to study this, to try and uh, unco uncover the true facts of when Indian influence first happened, how old is India's influence in Africa. But there is something that, uh, there is a, there are certain telltale signs and certain clues that are unmistakable. So, for example, you have the fact that there are Indian zebu cattle in Africa, throughout Africa, especially in northern and eastern Africa, and also in other parts of Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, etc. So, what is the zebu cattle? So, the zebu cattle are indigenous to India. This is the great Indian zebu bull. This is what you see in the ancient carvings and sculptures. In Harappa, Mohenjo-daro, and the Saptasindu region, right? So this is the ancient Zebu bull, and uh, so this animal, this great ancient animal, is found throughout Africa. Now, it is known that the Zebu cattle were present in Egypt around 2000 BCE. So that gives us some kind of a clue as to when India's influence would have started. It's at least 4,000 years before today. And today these zebu cattle are basically they have intermingled with the local cattle and they have produced hybrid uh, hybrid uh, breeds of cattle. But the zebu influence is unmistakable. Now these cattle, they don't travel or migrate on their own. They don't say, oh, let's go to Africa. No, they, they, these cattle are domestic cattle. They have been domesticated in India many thousands, many thousands of years ago. Essentially at the beginning, of the Harappan phase, in the very dawn of the so-called Harappan phase of Indian civilization. So if they travel to another faraway place, it means that they have traveled with people. It means they traveled with Indian people who, who went all the way to these faraway lands. So the presence of Zebu cattle 4,000 years ago in Egypt tells us that Indians have been in, present in Africa for at least 4,000 years. So that is the thing. We There's been a great deal of Indian influence in Africa in all kinds of ways. 
genetic influence, cultural influence, uh, the cattle that we see, textiles, clothing, cuisine, customs. It's a very deep and very ancient influence. And unfortunately, no historian has bothered to figure out or try to study or research how ancient this influence is and to what extent it uh, spread and what was the origin of this. When did India start interacting with the Africas? The fact is this, if Indians could reach Australia 5,000 years ago, well, Africa is much closer. It's much easier to reach. So it's not surprising, considering the fact that they reached Australia 5,000 years ago, it's not surprising that they have also penetrated all the way into Africa. So that's about Africa. It's a very interesting story. It's a very interesting piece of history that has been that is currently mostly unknown to us. Lots of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle are missing and many pieces are available. So how do we find out? One of the ways of finding out is to do a genetic study of the African cattle breeds, especially those that have Zebu ancestry. And that would tell us when was the introgression of, of Indian Zebu genes into African cattle. So that would give us a very clear marker as to when Zebu cattle first reached Africa. And that would give us a, a good handle about when Indian people first made their way into Africa. So it's a very interesting uh, piece of history here that we need to be aware of and our researcher, researchers need to investigate to start investigating. Okay, next question. Okay, this is by Tejas. Why is it that we Indians never invaded outwards except once the Cholas? Even the large empires like the Mauryas and the Guptas never expanded out of the Indian subcontinent. Okay, so this is another... Uh, very popular belief among Indians. We we see all these uh, forwards and posts on social media. Oh, we are such a uh, peace-loving people. We have not not invaded anybody for two thousand years, etc. And it's completely untrue. Yeah, we know the Cholas did that. Nowadays, people know that the Cholas were a great, great Indian dynasty, a great Indian empire. About five years ago, almost no one knew about the Cholas. Today, thankfully, people are getting to know about the Cholas. But the Cholas are not the only ones who expanded out of the Indian subcontinent. So Indians have been expanding westwards and northwards, north of the Himalayas and west of the Himalayas for thousands of years. You had the Mitanni kingdom, which was present in which was uh, which was in power in present-day Syria about three and a half thousand years ago. And the royalty, the aristocracy of the Mitanni spoke Sanskrit. They spoke late Vedic Sanskrit, not Rig Vedic Sanskrit, but late Vedic Sanskrit. And we know this because the earliest known inscription in Sanskrit is from the Mitanni Empire, from the Mitanni Kingdom. It is a horse training manual by a horse trainer whose name was Kikulli. Now he wrote this manual in the local language okay, in the Hurrian language, I think. But there were certain terms, certain technical terms that did not exist in the local language. And therefore, he had to use Sanskrit terminology to describe these terms like Navavartana and all that. So the number of uh, circuits a horse should, should complete in one day or in one hour and various other technical terms about horse training. 
So we find these Sanskrit words, these these late Vedic Sanskrit words in these ancient in this ancient uh, Mitanni text. And there is a royal treaty between the people between the uh, Mitanni and uh, and another kingdom. So this royal treaty invokes Vedic gods Indra and uh, Varuna, etc., in order to seal the treaty. So clearly, these were descendants of Indians. So we have clear evidence of Indians going westwards, westwards of India, thousands of kilometers, and conquering and ruling kingdoms as far west as Syria, present-day Syria and Anatolia. So that is an example of Indians expanding outwards and invading lands outwards. Let's talk about Kanishka. Kanishka the Great, one of India's greatest emperors of all time. He conquered an enormous empire. His empire stretched from the Caspian Sea to the Aral Sea to Western India to Eastern India and north of the Himalayas. It, it, it included the present-day region of Xinjiang in China, which is currently occupied by China, the Tarim River Basin. So it was an enormous empire. And he conquered that using military. It was a military conquest. So Kanishka was a great military conqueror. He was Indian. So here we have another example of Indians expanding all the way to Central Asia and Iran and present-day China, temporarily China. And then we have the Indian Emperor Vasudeva I, who again expanded into Central Asia and evicted the Chinese from that region. Who were The Chinese were from time to time trying to expand their area of influence. So they were trying to come into Central Asia and Vasudeva I kicked them out of Central Asia. So here we have another emperor again who has expanded out of India. So there are so many other examples. There is a Manipuri king whose name I forget right now. I will look it up. But this Manipuri king conquered parts of Burma. And there was another Manipuri king who conquered parts of present-day Yunnan, the Yunnan province of China. So Indians have been expanding beyond our present-day boundaries for thousands of years. I have just spoken about a few of these expansions, military conquests. There are many more that I will cover in future episodes, right? Because those are related to the Aryan invasion and all that. So we will have a future episode about the Aryan invasion theory or the migration theory or the tourism theory or the picnic theory, whatever you call it. So Indians have been expanding to all parts of the world for thousands of years. This idea that Indians are a peace-loving people who have never tried to hurt anyone or never tried to expand militarily. This is absolute bunkum. It's nonsense. The truth is out there. You just need to look it up. And unfortunately, our history textbooks all the time, I'm going to say this, our education system does not want to cover these matters. They want you to think that Indians are a defeated nation. Indians did not have any military uh, history. Indians uh, have not been a warlike people. Indians could not ever defend themselves. That is absolute nonsense. It, the, the fact is that the opposite of that is true. So that hopefully answers this question in brief. Next question. This is by Anusha. Did our culture have any influence on Egyptian culture? Because we can see sun temples in worship of sun in the Egyptian civilization. That's a good question. So yes, the Egyptians did worship the sun. I think it was Akhenaten who introduced 
temporarily a monotheistic cult of worshipping the sun. And uh, after his uh, death, Egypt uh, reverted to their polytheistic system. So Akhenaten was the husband of the great, uh, very famous queen Nefertiti. So yes, the Egyptians did worship the sun. And even when it was not this brief monotheist, monotheistic period, overall Egypt was a polytheistic culture and the sun god was part of their uh, pantheon of gods. I believe that the sun, this worship of the sun is something that you will see throughout the world in all polytheistic cultures. So it's not necessarily because of Indian influence. However, it doesn't mean there was no Indian influence in Egypt. So around, around uh, 1600 BCE or thereabouts, there was an invasion into Egypt from the north. These were a nomadic warrior people. Uh, they were horse riders. They had chariots. They had bows and arrows and they had, uh, they had copper weapons, the, the axe and the sword, and they introduced new technologies into Egypt that were not present before. And the Egyptians called these people the Hyksos. And these Hyksos who came from the north, they worshipped a storm god, a thunder god, who is very reminiscent of our own thunder god, Indra. So their customs were very reminiscent and very similar to Vedic customs. The chariot, the horse, horse sacrifices and the, the manner of warfare was also similar to Vedic and, and post-Vedic Indian uh, manner of fighting. And the weapons that you find are also similar and the god that they refer to. The Western historians uh, try to associate this god with the Middle Eastern god Baal, who is also a storm god of sorts. But if you look at the overall pattern of the culture and uh, manner of invasion, and tactics and strategies of the Hyksos, it's very clear that it's, it's an Indo-European people who came from the north. Now, north of Egypt at that time, you had the Mitanni kingdom and the Hittites. These were both Indo-Aryan kingdoms. These were all, uh, these are all kingdoms that were ruled by an Indo-Aryan aristocracy, by an Indo-Aryan ruling class, Sanskrit-speaking people. So just north of Egypt, you have these guys, these Sanskrit-speaking descendants of Indians who worship Indra and Varuna and, and other gods, who are warriors, who have Vedic traditions and uh, who follow the Vedic culture. So it's very clear that it is these people who invaded Egypt and who were known to the Egyptians as the Hyksos. So the Western mainstream historians disagree with this. They try to... Uh, to associate these Hyksos with uh, Middle Eastern and Western East, Western Asian uh, peoples. So the jury is still out there. The Western historians do not agree with the, uh, the idea that these were Indo-European and Indo-Aryan people. But if you look at the overall evidence that we have, it's clear that these were nothing but the either the, the Mitanni or their Hittite neighbors. So clearly, if you look at this evidence, then there is definite Indian influence in ancient Egypt. And if you, and there's another piece of evidence. There is this famous king Tutankhamun, whose mummy was discovered more than 100 years ago. It was kept in Europe for many, many years. I'm not sure if it's gone back to Egypt or not. But they did a DNA analysis of King Tutankhamun. And they found 
they discovered that his patrilineal lineage, the patrilineal haplogroup was R1b. Now R1b is something that is a descendant of the R1 star haplogroup, which most likely originates in India. There is also a subject of controversy, but it's going to be resolved very soon. My very strong conviction is based on all the data that we have at our disposal that the R1 haplogroup originated in India. And if that is the case, if that is proven right, then it means that King Tutankhamun had Indian DNA. He was a descendant of an Indian patrilineal lineage. So that demonstrates again that there is Indian influence in uh, Egypt. And there are more, um, there's more evidence of certain Egyptian pharaohs marrying the uh, marrying queens who were of Mitanni and uh, Hittite ancestry, which essentially is Indian ancestry. So there is a great deal of intermingling, at least in the royal uh, families, between the royalty of Egypt and people of Indian descent. And again, then we have the invasion by the Hyksos, who are, of, who are most likely of Indo-Aryan origin. So there's a great deal of ancient influence in Egypt. But as of now, as of today, it is not accepted by the mainstream eminent Western and Indian historians. But the evidence is all out there for everyone to see. You just need to see the patterns put together pieces and the evidence tells you what the truth is. So that's about Egypt. Next question. This is by Akash. The Greek god Zeus suspiciously, suspiciously looks like the Greek version of Indra. Knowing that our civilization is older than the Greeks, have they literally copied our devas and made them their gods? Good question. So who is Zeus? So Zeus is a Greek god. He is the god of thunder. Right? And he is a god who, according to Greek mythology, fought with a great sea monster and killed that sea monster and saved the world in the process. So he is the god of thunder and he is the killer of this great sea monster. Now in Indian, in the ancient Indian Vedic pantheon, we have the great god Indra who was the most powerful god. He was the god of thunder and he fought the great serpent Vritra. Vritra. And he destroyed Vritra and thereby he saved the world. Because Vritra had encircled the oceans and the world was no longer able to, uh, to, to access the water of the oceans. So this great serpent, this great dragon had to be slain. And Indra, this heroic, powerful thunder god and the hammer god, he fought this great dragon Vritra and destroyed him. Because of which he is known as Vritrahan, means the destroyer of Vritra. So that's a theme that you see throughout the Indo-European world. This great thunder god, who is also a hammer god, who destroys this great sea serpent, right? So Zeus is definitely the Greek version of Indra, no doubt about it. And Zeus also took on characteristics of an earlier, of an older Vedic god called Dyospita. Dyospita was essentially the father of all the Vedic gods. He was the the supreme deity in the old Vedic pantheon, Dyospita. So Dyospita became Zeus Pater in Greek. And he became Jupiter in Rome. That is how it goes. And Jupiter is again a thunder god 
who kills a great sea serpent. Do you see this, this pattern? Now the question is, did the Greeks steal this from the Indians? That is the question that Akash is asking and I'm going to answer that right now. So let me share something on the screen. This here is the name of a bunch of Vedic tribes, Vedic clans rather. Okay, So there was this great battle during the Vedic times, a very famous battle, the battle of the ten, of the ten kings. And in this battle, the Bharata king Sudas defeated a coalition of other Vedic clans. He defeated them and he expelled them from the Indian subcontinent and they had to go into exile westwards, all of these Vedic clans. So these are some of the names of these Vedic clans. Uh, the Parth, Parshwa clan who became the Persians, the uh, Sarmatians, the, the Brigu clan who became the Phrygians who eventually lived in, in Anatolia and the Alina clan who became the Hellenic peoples. So this Alina clan of Rigvedic Aryans or the Rigvedic people had to migrate westwards, go into exile. They never came back. And the Alinas came to be known as the Hellenic peoples eventually. The Hellenic peoples gave rise to a nation called Hellas, which is the Greek version of Greece. We call it Greek in Greece in English. And in the Greek language, it co it's called Hellas. And they speak the Hellenic languages. And these are the descendants of the Alina clan of the Rigvedic people. And therefore, to answer this question, they did not steal the, the, the Indian gods from us. It was their gods. These were their gods. They moved westwards and they continued their traditions. They did not give the, the, their gods up. They just gave the... They, the language eventually morphed into something different. And that's how all the Indo-European languages emerged out of one ancient primordial language. So it is the westward expansion or expulsion of these Rigvedic clans that gave rise to all the different branches of the Indo-European peoples. And the Alinas became the Hellenic people. And that's why, they, that's why Zeus is essentially the same as Indra. And the Romans, they absorbed this culture and the, the pantheon of gods from the Greeks. The Romans did not make any bones about the fact that they were taking culture from the Greeks. right? The Rome, Romans did not have a great culture of their own. They were great conquerors. So they conquered Greece and absorbed their culture. So Zeus, Pater became Jupiter in Rome. That's how it went. And there is another thunder god another hammer god who destroyed a snake. He is the Viking god Thor. And there is again the same pattern. If you see Indra, he has two main weapons. One is the mace or the hammer and the other is the, is the thunderbolt, the Vajra. Even the mace is called the Vajra. So Indra's weapons are the Vajra in, in physical form, which is the mace or the hammer and the Vajra in the form of a thunderbolt. And Zeus is exactly that. And Zeus also destroys, he, he does battle with the great Yormugandra, the Midgard serpent, and kills the serpent and saves the world. So there is this pattern of, of Indra everywhere across India and all the way west to the Nordic countries. So to answer your question, to summarize, Zeus is a Greek god, 
But yes, he originates in, in India as Indra. Excellent question. Okay. This is my savage comment. What are the connections between pre-Christian Euro-America and Vedic civilizations? Well, I don't know about America, but Europe, pre-Christian Europe has an immense amount of connections with the Vedic civilization. Like I said, after the battle of the Ten Kings, the the all the, the tribes, the coalition of, of uh, Vedic clans that lost the battle were forced into exile. They had to go westwards and they went into various directions. Uh, let me again share this. This is a list of those of those uh, of those Vedic cl- uh, clans that migrated westwards. This is from Shrikant Talagiri's website. Uh, he's a great guy. You should check it out. He has done a great deal of work about, about this. So these, this is a list of all those clans. This is a partial list of those clans. There are many more. And these are the clans that gave rise to the various Indo-European people. So, so, that's, uh, so there is a great deal of, of uh, connection between Europe and the Vedic peoples. Let, let me share something else here. So according to Serbian mythology, there is a trinity, a trimurti, a trimurti of sorts in, in Serbian mythology, which consists of Vishni, Visni, Ziva and Branyanya, which is the same as Vishnu, Shiva and Brahma. So how did Serbia acquire Indian gods? Right? And Serbian folk tradition says that Triglav lives in India. He originates in India and that India was the original home of the Ser- Serbian people. So this is pre-Christian mythology. It is. It was more or less stamped out during the great European Holocaust, the, during the great European cultural Holocaust, which is very well brought out in this book called The Darkening Age. The author is Catherine Nixie. It is the Christian destruction of Europe's ancient Indo-European culture. So in Europe had a cultural continuum. It was the same culture all across Europe, but there were many local manifestations of this culture. So the gods all had different local names and the cultures and traditions were all different locally. But if you saw the, if you examined them as a whole, they were the same cultures, the same traditions and the same gods. So all the way from Ireland into, into Eastern Europe, all the way to India, through Iran, you had the same culture. This was an enormous cultural continuum the same culture with lots of local manifestations so to the to the untrained eye they would look like different customs and different cultures and especially after the indian indo-european languages diversified and they became mutually unintelligible so this looks at first glance like very different cultures but it was one single cultural continuum and after around 1200 years ago the Christianization of Europe started in full force, maybe, maybe 1500 years ago. And Europe's ancient uh, tradition and culture and, and religions and folk traditions were all wiped out forcefully. And that's why we don't see any traces of this anymore. Europe has become a monoculture. But that is now again dissipating because Europeans are rejecting this monocultural idea. Many of them are becoming atheists and many of them are trying to revert to their ancient indigenous cultures. So there is this uh, religion called Romuva in Eastern Europe. I think it's in Latvia or Lithuania in the Baltic regions. Uh, 
and the the people of uh, northern europe are also trying to revert to a form of their indigenous viking religion the slavic peoples also to some extent are trying to uh, some of them are trying to reconnect with the pre-christian uh, slavic traditions and culture and religion and the pantheon of gods which is essentially a derivative of the vedic pantheon of gods right so there is all of this uh, the, I can show you some more examples, some more interesting examples. So in Lithuania, you find that traditional Lithuanian houses are adorned with the motif of two horse heads, which are called Ashvinai in Lithuanian. These are the Baltic counterparts of the Rig Vedic Ashvins, the divine horse twins. The Lithuanian word for horse is Aswa and the Sanskrit word, as, as you know, is Ashwa. So that's another incredible example of the commonality of culture. Here's one more. The native Slavic name of Croatia is Hrvatska. It is derived from old Persian Haravat, which is named after the ancient great river Saraswati, the region the Greeks called Arakosia. So once again, you have this evidence that is staring us in the face, right? Isn't it interesting? So there are incredible connections between India and ancient Europe. We just have to discover them. It's it's a fascinating uh, it's a fascinating thing. I don't know about the uh, connections between ancient India and America. As of now, there is a great deal of uh, what you would call circumstantial evidence, right? But we still don't have hard evidence. There was this uh, Indian writer called Bhikshu Chamanlal, who wrote a book called Hindu America, in which he brought this out. It's like a century ago. That book was apparently banned in America. And people like Graham Hancock have done a great deal of work in uncovering the ancient history of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. He has found that it's much more ancient than what is what the mainstream historians tried to claim it was. But as of today, we don't have hard evidence of connections between ancient Vedic India and the ancient American peoples. Now, if the ancient Indians were able to travel to Australia by sea, it's not, well, it's not uh, hard to imagine that they could have gone further and gone all the way to, uh, to, to the Americas. It's possible. But as of today, we don't have hard, undeniable, unmistakable evidence. So that is something that is a matter for future research by, by future historians or maybe maybe current historians if they are so inclined. So that's your answer. This is by Sorajit Ghosh. Why is Kalari Payuthu known as the father of all martial arts? What is its history? So unfortunately, we don't know much about the history of Kalari Payuthu. We know that it's one of the ancient martial arts of India, one of the few surviving ancient martial arts of India. Its, it's, of, uh, its origin is in Kerala, as we know very well. We don't really know how old it is. It is clearly of great antiquity, but we don't have an exact idea of what precisely its age is, because as I will say again and again, our historians have never tried to 
investigate the matter. So we don't know how old it is. It is clearly a very ancient martial art. The fact is that India was home to a great number of martial arts. And these were all stamped out in the past 1000 years by the various invading peoples, by the Turkic invaders and later by the European invaders. Because the martial arts are a threat to any invading and occupying force. So they tried to stamp these out. And most of these martial arts have now gone extinct. There's very little left. There is a, a martial art called uh, Shastravidya that is still practiced by uh, practiced by some people in northern India. And uh, some other forms of martial arts. In Manipur, there is still the indigenous martial arts called Thangta, etc., which is still prevalent. Even that has been curtailed to some extent because of the British occupation. But apart from that, there are very few martial arts left in India. Kalare Payutu, thankfully, is still there. It's a very ancient martial art. And there is this uh, belief that Kalare Payutu is the origin of, uh, of Kung Fu. So we don't know for sure. I am not saying it's not, it's not the case. But we don't have evidence today because we no one has done research. It is possible there's a linkage, but we have still to find the evidence. So what we know is this. There was this ancient, uh, there was this Indian uh, monk called uh, Bodhidharma, who was a Buddhist monk. And he was also a great practitioner of Dhyana meditation, which is an ancient form of Indian meditation. So this Indian monk was most likely from southern India. And he traveled north of the Himalayas and east into China. And he went to to a temple, a monastery that had been built by a Chinese king for another monk whose name was Buddha, whose name was Buddha Bhadra. So Buddha Bhadra had gone to China to translate Indian uh, texts, Indian philosophical and religious texts from Sanskrit into Chinese. And when Buddha Bhadra died, Buddha Dharma went there to replace him. And this monastery that was built by the Chinese king for this purpose is the Shaolin Monastery. And it is Bodhidharma who introduced this ancient Indian martial art to the Chinese. And the Chinese developed it further and it, it is now known as Kung Fu. It is clearly of Indian origin. Even the Shaolin Temple's website states this unambiguously. That Kung Fu originated with the Indian Dhyana master Bodhidharma. And from China, this martial art traveled to various places. So in Japan, you have this form of Okinawan Karate called Shorin Ryu Karate. It is It originated in Okinawa, in the island of Okinawa. And Shorin Ryu means Shaolin school in Japanese. And Shaolin Kung Fu has also in, uh, influenced Korean martial arts and various other martial arts of various parts of Eastern Asia. So if there is a definite connection between Kalari Payutu and Shaolin Kung Fu, then one could definitely make the statement, make the assertion that Kalari Payutu may be the father of all Asian, Eastern Asian and Indian martial arts. But we don't know for sure. So India, like I said, has a very ancient tradition of martial arts. In the Mahabharata time, the, the Guru Drona, Dronacharya was a teacher of martial arts. He taught his students various martial arts. So we have had a very ancient tradition of martial arts. As for Kalare Payutu, we still don't know for sure. But it's definitely a candidate. So we need more research in this field. Next question. It's by Abhishek Yadav. 
there are a lot of similarities between tamil and the korean language more than 500 words are similar was this story true about an indian princess and a possible international marriage that took place 2000 years ago she married king suro and became the first queen of the gaya kingdom so yes there is definitely this ancient uh, tradition in korea that the king suro of the gaya kingdom the the who was the founder of this dynasty and he lived approximately 2000 years ago he married an indian princess who came from ayodhya and her name was queen suriratna so this is a tradition this is a historical tradition that has continued for almost 2000 years and millions of koreans trace back their lineage to this indian queen some of the most prominent families in korea some of the most prominent clans in korea for example the kim family they claim descent from queen suriratna of ayodhya so the kim family is very well known um, mr kim jong un is a member of this family so it's clearly a very illustrious lineage they are they are one of the most uh, prominent families in both the koreas so queen suriratna definitely i mean the the legend is there we don't have unmistakable undeniable evidence of that but uh, the queen's uh, tomb is there in korea the king's tomb is there and millions of people people trace back their lineage to her so clearly there is this ancient connection that the koreans very proudly claim with india now uh, queen suriratna was from ayodhya which is in northern india and yet there are similarities between tamil and the korean language this has been very well documented by lots of people so that is a mystery how did that happen so a northern indian queen marries a korean king and gives rise to many great uh, descendants and millions of descendants today and yet the korean language is more sim- is is connected to a southern indian language a tamil language that's a big mystery that nobody has investigated so i hope that some linguists or some researchers would look into this because what you have what you have stated here is, is absolutely correct i i myself don't know korean or tamil unfortunately but i know people who know tamil and korean and they have stated this they have definitely described this um and it's 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 been described multiple times so this is another very interesting uh, observation that needs a great deal of future research okay this is by priyansh bansal i want to know about japan did a migration happen from india to japan because 80% of japanese gods are from hinduism it's a buddhist country and we know that buddhism originates from hinduism so that's an interesting question and you are absolutely right uh, lots of japanese buddhist gods buddhist deities are actually hindu gods which again bolsters my case that buddhism and hinduism are the same thing so you have goddess benzaiten who is a japanese buddhist goddess who is saraswati you have god uh, you have goddess kishoten who is a buddhist goddess who is lakshmi you have daikokuten who is kala bhairava or shiva and you have kangiten who is ganesh so these are hindu gods who are worshiped in japanese buddhism so lo- so 
Japanese Buddhism and Japanese society as a whole has a is is based on a foundation on a bedrock of Indian culture in in it permeates all strata and levels of Japanese society and culture so clearly there's a great deal of there's an enormous amount of Indian culture and influence in Japan even though it may not be visible to the untrained eye but it it is there it is very much there so your question is very valid was there an a migration from india into japan well the answer is no there was no migration of indian people from india into japan all of these cultural elements of hinduism and buddhism and other forms of culture made their way to japan via china so i mentioned the great uh, guru buddhidharma who taught the chinese what became kung fu he was a practitioner he was a great master an accomplished master of dhyana meditation now dhyana meditation is a sanskrit word dhyan the chinese don't know how to pronounce dhyan so they turned it into chan that is the way they were able to pronounce dhyan so the chinese practiced chan buddhism or chan meditation which is dhyan meditation and from china chan buddhism and chan meditation made its way into japan where it it came to be called zen buddhism and zen meditation so japanese zen is indian dhyan it derives its lineage and origin from india so it is through china that these elements of culture migrated eastwards into japan all these buddhist gods and goddesses and hindu gods and goddesses and all these cultural practices and traditions and all these different forms of meditation and all of japanese buddhism and hinduism came into japan via china which tells you how deeply china was influenced by india even today china is the world's second largest dharmic country and largest buddhist country because china is home to at least 200 million practicing buddhists as of right now as of today even though it is officially an atheistic and communist country so china is the world's largest buddhist nation even today and in the past before the ravages that communism wreaked upon the society japan was a very very you could say a dharmic society it was very deeply influenced by india despite india never sending a single soldier across the tibetan border into china so the chinese accepted and absorbed and lapped up indian culture voraciously they loved it they they sent uh, they sent emissaries requesting indian kings and, and and queens for for to send scholars to 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 china to translate uh sanskrit texts and pali texts into chinese and teach the chinese indian culture and philosophy and and various aspects of dharma so indian culture spread throughout china and from china it spread into japan so that is the story there was no migration from india into japan it was a transmission of culture through china very interesting story and a story that nobody will teach you that your textbooks or teachers will not teach you so it's something worth investigating and and reading about okay this is by indranil methi we all hear about the cholas going eastwards and influencing them we see the angkor wat temple my question is was there any military campaign i mean did the cholas do military campaigns in eastern asia absolutely the cholas uh 
exactly 996 years ago, the Cholas in the year 1025, the Cholas launched a maritime expedition, a naval expedition into the Srivijaya kingdom of Indonesia. And this was a naval invasion and they conquered this kingdom and this brought to an end the uh, the dynasty uh, of, of that era, which was the Shailendra dynasty of Indonesia. And so there were clearly military expansions and invasions and not just the Chola, the Cheras, the Pandyas, etc. These various southern Indian kingdoms also expanded to various degrees militarily into Eastern Asia, into Thailand, Burma, Malaysia, Indonesia, all the way into Laos, Vietnam, and all the way into the Philippines. The Philippines themselves were Hinduized and Sanskritized before the, the Christian uh, Christian invasions happened and, and Christianity was imposed upon them. So, so even the Philippines was a Hindu culture. So this happened because of military invasions. Now the thing is this, despite Indian kingdoms invading Eastern Asia and Southeastern Asia militarily, still the people of Southeast, Southeast Asia readily accepted and absorbed Indian culture like Sanskrit and Hinduism. And the reason is very simple. The Indian conquests were never exploitative or extractive in nature. The Indians conquered, but they did not colonize. Colonization is the slow, gradual destruction of the conquered country by, by the extraction of wealth and the destruction of the local culture. India never did that. The Indians who conquered these countries or these kingdoms, they would usually install a king there who would marry into the locals and over several generations they would become localized. And you would hardly see any, any Indian influence genetically. They would look like the locals but the culture would be Indian. And slowly all the locals absorbed Indian culture, Hinduism, and later it transformed into what we now call Buddhism. So this you see throughout Central, uh, throughout Eastern Asia and Southeastern Asia, you had so many Hindu kingdoms. In Vietnam, you had the great Champa kingdom, which later became a Thalassocratic empire, which conquered the so-called South China Sea, which was called the Champa Sea uh, for most of history. So there was a great deal of, of military conquest eastwards. There were so many, I mean, hundreds, you could say, of Hinduized kingdoms and dynasties over, over almost 1500 years, right? So Indonesia's greatest era, the golden era of, Indi of Indonesia is the Majapahit Empire, which was a Hindu empire. And there is even today remembered by the people of Indonesia as the golden era of the nation. So there were so uh, and this uh, Angkor Wat temple was in Cambodia. It was initially a temple dedicated to Vishnu or to Shiva in some forms, and later on it was uh, repurposed for worshiping Gautam Buddha, who again is regarded as an incarnation of Vishnu. So the outward nature changed, but inside it remained the same. So yes, again to answer your question, there were many military campaigns by Indians in Eastern and Southeast Asia. Okay, this is by Dennis Singh. Can you talk a bit about the Panchatantra and its influence on worldwide fables? That's a very interesting question, right? The Panchatantra is one of the 
maybe the world's oldest collection of of fables and uh, stories concerning uh, ethics and morality in in uh, portrayed in a, in a in an allegorical and simplified manner so uh, let me share something there is this uh, there is a book that was written by franklin edgerton about 100 years ago okay and he states if you can uh, look down over here that about so as early as the 11th century the work the panchatantra reached europe and before 1600 it existed in greek latin spanish italian german english old slavonic czech and perhaps other slavonic languages its range has extended from java in indonesia all the way to iceland in western europe in the middle of the atlantic ocean so that is the incredible influence of the panchatantra that's how far it spread worldwide and the the truth that uh, will not be told to you is that the so called arabian nights are all influenced by the panchatantra these are retellings and reinterpretations of the tales of the panchatantra and many of the adventures of the of of sinbad the sailor which is another uh western asian uh, mythical hero these adventures are again inspired by the by the panchatantra so the panchatantra had an immense amount of of influence worldwide it is perhaps the most influential uh, set of ancient tales most likely it has also influenced aesop's fables to a very great extent even though western historians are loath to admit this fact and yet if you read the panchatantra and then you read the 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 aesop's fables you will see very clear similarities and patterns and the panchatantra is clearly older so it tells you which in which direction the influence spread and as i as i showed you before the hellenic peoples the greeks are descended from the alina clan of of vedic of rigvedic people of our own people so it is not really surprising that the panchatantra also made it made its way either to them or with them into present day greece so a great deal of influence so this is the extent of indian influence ancient indian influence worldwide which we are never taught about which is rather sad next question okay this is the this is by arvind krishnan the chinese policy of one belt one road has in many ways been inspired by chinese history in their strategies location of ports etc how should india's history guide indian foreign policy and global reach that's an excellent question so we have this great military tradition tradition philosophical tradition strategic tradition of real politic we have the arthashastra that uh, our great mentor and scholar vishnugupta chanakya wrote the arthashastra deals with uh, things like uh, foreign policy and dealing with neighbors and all that and unfortunately since our so called independence we have forgotten that something called the arthashastra exists and our foreign policy has been based on naivety and idealism the geopolitics is all about real politic it's all about temporary alliances and temporary temporary enmities there are no real friends or enemies you have adversaries 
and 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 you have allies and these are all this is an ever changing uh, state of affairs so you need to understand real politics you need to be realistic and you need to be pragmatic and practical when when you deal with geopolitics unfortunately since 1947 our foreign policy has either been focused solely on pakistan and that too in a very appeasing manner and we have ignored the whole world even today our diplomatic core is the smallest among big nations we have at most 1700 diplomats the diplomatic core of singapore is bigger than this diplomatic core of india so india needs to learn from the arthashastra and we have like i have just demonstrated in the preceding 60 seconds 60 minutes we have had an immense amount of influence worldwide and we still enjoy a great deal of goodwill because of our ancient cultural relations especially in eastern asia and other places so we can leverage that that is called soft power now power is mostly about hard power people will not respect your soft power unless you can demonstrate real hard power so that is one thing india needs to demonstrate hard power india needs to build up its hard power hard military muscle especially naval muscle and it should reach out there should be a great deal of outreach with the eastern asian nations especially southeast asia japan etc where india still enjoys an immense amount of goodwill because of our, of our millennia old cultural relations and genetic relations so this is these are things that india can leverage and should leverage in our uh, foreign policy we had this look east policy which was all about looking eastwards and doing nothing nowadays we have this half hearted hesitant act east policy which is not really i don't really see anything happening so india needs to expand its diplomatic core if india wants to be seen as a major nation if india wants a great future for the country we need a powerful diplomatic core and we need to have a great deal of outreach with other nations and our strategies our policies our tactics need to be inspired by military history not by realism or idealism right so india has an incredible geographical location we are at the center of the indian ocean region and we have access to so many choke points such as the malacca strait and the uh, persian gulf the, and all that right and we have access to all of africa to to southeast asia to australia it's an incredible geographic location and india has unfortunately never made use of that india should have been a maritime nation india was always a maritime nation for thousands of years but after independence india doesn't even have a proper coast guard so my point is india needs to look back learn from its history learn from from the time when india was a was the most powerful civilization and most influential civilization in the world and draw the lessons from there and apply them in today's world because these lessons these lessons are timeless these patterns of of geopolitics are still timeless the technologies may change but human nature never changes and certain patterns of geopolitics will repeat themselves over and over again so it would be good if india were to draw guidance and inspiration from its history and apply the strategies and tactics of the arthashastra and of our of our own great thinkers into foreign policy and geopolitics so that's the answer to this question right so let me now take some live chat questions let me take a look at what you guys are asking
Okay. Let me take a question from Pallavi Sharma. One second. So Pallavi asks, how can I get real knowledge of history? Please mention sources and ways. Well, I wish I could give you two or three books, the names of two or three books that you read and you will get a good idea of history, especially Indian history. But such books don't exist. There is no one book that is that is good, you know, that will cover the entirety of Indian history in a, in a fair and transparent and unbiased manner. Even the good books of Indian history have uh, things like the Aryan invasion theory and many of these Western distortions, Eurocentric distortions and Marxist distortions of Indian history. So what the way I have learned history is I have been reading for a very long time. I started reading things, reading books when I was around seven years old. And I have always had this curiosity to learn about how the world works. So I have read hundreds of books. I don't read a book from cover to cover. If a book catches my attention, I go to the place, to the, to the location in the book where the information that I seek is, and I read that much. So I have read many books, maybe hundreds of books, but I have not read all of them from cover to cover. I only look at specific uh, matters in books. And I have read possibly thousands of research papers and articles. So it takes time and it takes a great deal of effort to, to acquire a proper understanding of history. There should have been a couple of books of Indian history that would enable you to just read those two or three books and understand Indian history in its entirety. Unfortunately, it's not there. So what I would suggest is become curious, ask questions. You, We have to first unlearn what we have learned in our education system. Our education system is 20 years of being taught lies. So we have to first unlearn that. We have to tell ourselves that our teachers, our textbooks are not the correct authority. We have to question. We have to start asking questions. We have to start questioning the authority. And then we have to use that curiosity to, to read as much as we can. Either read online articles or read books if you can acquire some books. Or you can listen to podcasts or see programs like what I am doing. So you have to essentially absorb knowledge in a great in, in a variety of ways. And slowly over time, you will build up this database of information. And eventually you'll be start, you will start to, to, to see patterns in this data. So you'll be you'll be able to start seeing correlations between historical events. Like the way see. See, no nation exists inside a silo. No nation exists in, in vacuum. All history is interconnected. So if you learn enough history, you'll be able to see how events in, let's say, Turkey influenced India 500 years later or even 1,000 years later and so forth. So reading history, learning history is a, is a long-term investment. It's a long-term process. The best way is to find a few good books or a few good podcasts or something and 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 dig deep into that. So it's it's something that will not happen overnight. But if you are curious about it, if you have the interest, then it will be an enjoyable process. So I hope that answers your question. Next question. Okay. Let me find some good, interesting questions. Uh, <laughs> why don't I write a book? I will. I will write a book. 
I will let you guys know about it. Uh, this is about India's influence abroad. So I will take questions related to that. Uh, okay, this is by Manan Sharma. Can you please talk about the Sintashta culture in relation to the Indus Valley civilization? So the Sintashta culture is something that is there in, in um, it is north and west of the Himalayas. It is in present-day Russia. And it is uh, regarded by Western historians and mainstream historians as being the place of origin of the Indo-Aryan culture or Indo-Iranian culture. So you will see practices that are very, very reminiscent of Rig Vedic practices there. Uh, horse burials, the, the horse, the chariot. I'm not sure if the chariot is there, but lots of these cultural artifacts have, they have found are very reminiscent of Rig Vedic practices, right? So that's why it's been claimed that this is the origin of the Indo-Iranian peoples. This is the launching point of the Aryan invasion into India. Now, there is no evidence that it, that, uh, it was not the other way around. There is no evidence that it was not Indian people who went north, northwards and founded this place which is now known as Sintashta. There is no evidence of, of a migration in one way or the other way. So I think it is disingenuous to claim that it is the launching point of the invasion because there is no evidence of it. It's just a claim based, on, based upon consensus. So 20 historians get together and they say that, okay, we all agree that it is the launching point and that's how it becomes accepted dogma. But there is zero evidence for that. So that's my point. It is uh, all, um, the juries are still out. Where, what is the relationship between the Sintashta culture and the Harappan phase of India civilization? I think it is more or less contemporaneous, right? And there is clear cultural and other uh, similarities between Indian culture and what we find in the Sintashta Petrovka culture. But what came first is the real question and that is still something that is yet to be answered. So that is an ongoing controversy, so to say. And it is going to be the subject of future research. And I can tell you that Sintashta came after Indian culture. So it is Indian immigrants out of India who went north and west of India, like I have described earlier, who actually most likely founded this settlement. And they are the ones who went further West from there. So that is still to be proven, but that's what's most likely going to emerge from future research. Okay. Uh, more interesting questions. What ethnicity were the Egyptians? Uh, the Egyptians are most... Uh, they are considered to be of the Semitic ethnicity. The language, the Egyptian language was a Semitic language. So it is closely related to Hebrew and Aramaic. So to the Romans, the Egyptians were not an African people. They were an Asian people, right? The Romans considered them to be an Asian people. And uh, so to answer your question in brief, their ethnicity is most likely Semitic because their language the ancient Egyptian language was a Semitic language closely related to Hebrew and Aramaic and even to some extent to Arabic. So that was the overall ethnicity of the Egyptians. But like I mentioned, like I, like I showed earlier, like I said earlier, 
their royalty had Indian patrilineal lineage, uh, had a, the Indian patrilineal lineage R1B, especially King Tutankhamun. So the royalty seems to be of mixed uh, mixed ancestry, but the people of Egypt, to the greatest extent, were of Semitic ethnicity. Okay, let me see some more questions. What do we have? Let me find something. Okay, this is by Football Nerd. Thank you, sir. Was there any relation between the ancient Indians and American civilizations, especially Mayas and Incas, whose temples bear a great deal of similarity to ours? So, like I explained, there seems to be circumstantial evidence of a similarity of culture and, and uh, other aspects between the peoples of Central and Southern America and the people in the, in the ancient culture of India. And uh, like I said, a writer called Bhikshu Chamanlal wrote about this. He wrote a book called Hindu America around a century ago. And so far it is unproven because there has been a lack of research in South America and Central America and especially in North America. So there's been in, in Northern America, in the United States and Canada, there's almost no research archaeological work at all about the pre-Columbian peoples of America because of historical reasons. The entire continent of North America was stolen from the Native Americans and they were they were subjected to genocide. An enormous amount of, an enormous number of, of Native Americans were, were killed in various ways. So this land is all stolen from them. And if one were to do archaeological work and research, then all of this will emerge and it will become very clear to the world that this land actually belongs to the indigenous Americans and not to the descendants of European occupiers. So that is why there is absolutely no archaeological work done in North America about the indigenous cultures and civilizations. And that's why these are some of the reasons why we don't have any evidence of whether there is any connection between ancient India and the ancient Americas. Hopefully things will change. At least in Southern, in, in South America and Central America, some, some work is being done. So maybe some clues or evidence will emerge which would answer this question uh, in a definitive manner. As of now, we are we don't have sufficient data to to give an answer. Okay, let me take some more questions. <laughs> okay, so this is about Greece, about the Macedonians. Mayuresh asks. Please tell us about Alexander. Did he really come to India? There's a lot of confusion. So Indian sources, Indian historians don't mention Alexander at all. The Greeks extol him to the high heavens. He is the greatest conqueror and greatest uh, greatest marauder, etc. in the entire world's history. He conquered everything. He even came to India, conquered Western India, and then he went back because his soldiers were very tired. That's what the Greek historians claim. Now, the Indian historians don't write about him at all, even though they write extensively about his successor, Seleucus Niketer. So the Indian historians and chroniclers write extensively about the guy who came after Alexander, uh, 
but they don't write about Alexander the Great, who supposedly came into Western India and had this great battle with this king called Porus. And Indian historians, Indian records don't even mention Porus at all. So what I think happened was that Alexander may have come up to Western India, but Indian, but the Indian kings, it was either the Nandas or Chandragupta Maurya who was in power in Patliputra at the time. There is some amount of dispute about that. But whoever was in power in Patliputra, which was then the seat of power in, in India, whoever, whoever was the emperor there, did not take notice of this little Greek guy who has come there. And most likely what happened was that Alexander fought a border chieftain named Purushottam or Porus. And most likely he lost to this guy. Most likely Alexander lost this battle and it eventually must have ended up causing his death when he returned to Babylon. Because if there was such a great battle on the banks of the river Jhelum, right? Now this is in the Sapta Sindhu region and we had this great university Takshashila there, right next door practically. So if such a monumental battle happened there, how did none of the great scholars at Takshashila record this fact? Right? So these are the hard facts that make us question the Greek accounts that Alexander conquered Western India and went back only because his soldiers were very tired after a very long campaign. And the there's a Russian uh, military strategist, Marshal Zhukov, who also spoke about this, who also uh, wrote about this, I think. He also said that it's most likely that Alexander suffered a catastrophic defeat at the hands of a small border chieftain in India. And it eventually led to his death. So that is the most likely truth about what really happened. He most likely came and he suffered a terrible defeat and it ended up costing his life. Okay. Okay, this is a question about Chinggis Khan. Power trumps wealth every time. That's what I said. Is it still relevant in today's world? Who holds the most power? Is it a wealthy businessman or politician? So let's let's take a look at some people. Uh, we all know who Jack Ma is. He's one of China's richest people. Now, how powerful is he? He recently disappeared because he fell afoul of the Chinese Communist Party. And then after several months, he emerged and he apologized to the Chinese Communist Party and, and uh, you know, he had to eat humble pie. We don't really know what is his status today, but clearly his hundreds of billions of dollars were worthless when it came to the power of the Chinese Communist Party. Essentially, an ordinary functionary of the Chinese Communist Party holds more power than Jack Ma the richest man or one of the richest men in China that demonstrates that power trumps wealth every time. And the same goes for people in the United States, etc. I mean, do you really think Elon Musk has a great deal of power? He is one of the richest men in the world. He had to move from California into Texas because the lawmakers of California, the little legislators, they passed laws that were that were very inimical, inimical to the business that he was doing. So he had to move and escape from California into Texas. So these petty little lawmakers were able to expel him out of California. His hundreds of billions of dollars were of no use. So power does trump wealth 
every time and the same we can see in india as well you can see you can think of your own examples so power is what really matters and there are power centers and power structures in the world that are extra electoral in nature right they don't care about electoral democracies or democracy at all so there are these old power structures that still persist and that are not visible to the world so that's just a brief insight into power versus money power versus wealth power does trump wealth every time this is timeless wisdom okay let me take a couple more questions something interesting guys okay let us see this is by avinav sharma how did india have a gdp of 33% of the world without the current western capitalistic system in place today mm good good question good question excellent question so that right now we have this system throughout the world capitalism and to some extent mercantilism so capitalism is essentially about is the pursuit of quarter upon quarter profits never ending infinite profits on a limited planet and that's what's destroying the planet right now india never had a capitalistic system india wasn't a marxist country or a socialist country or a communist country india had its own ancient dharmic system of economics it is described in the, in the arthashastra so that is what enabled india to achieve this enormous gdp 33% is what angus madison has calculated which in my opinion is a gross underestimation i think that uh, in the harappan era india's gdp was well in excess of 50% of the entire world's gdp okay because it was an enormous urban civilization a fully industrialized urban civilization which was larger larger than egypt and mesopotamia and everything else put together so india has always been the most advanced civilization and the greatest economic civilization in the world it achieved this by industrializing itself india was at the forefront of science and technology we had maritime skills we had we were shipbuilders we traveled across the world in, across the ancient world we had the greatest architecture we had precise architecture we had standardization standardization of ways and measures we had war chariots we had uh, uh, we had hydro engineering and we had so much more so everything the most advanced science and technology of its time was in india india was a nation that always embraced science and technological advancement and india was fully industrialized until right until the time the british came into india and they deindustrialized india and sucked all the money and all the wealth and all the treasure out of india so india became that rich and powerful by following its own indigenous economic system and by embracing science and technology to the fullest and being industrialized without pursuing endless profits and destroying the world and destroying the environment so india had all these ancient great technologies we had crucible steel which was later called damascus steel we had crucible steel 500 bce or thereabouts in southern india 
and, and so many other technologies. So we develop these technologies and we industrialized ourselves without destroying the environment. We always lived in harmony with the environment. And despite that, we achieved in excess of 50% of the world's GDP in the Harappan era. So that's how it happened. So capitalism, Western capitalism is not the answer. Neither is Marxism or communism or capitalism. It is the ancient Indian system that was able to bring India this far ahead. So India should try and draw inspiration from that to some extent, to some extent. Okay, let me check a couple of more questions if I can find some. Okay, this is by Football Nerd. Thank you, sir. Are current day Europeans mostly descendants of the Romani sect? Or have Romanis been reduced to a small number? Also, is country Romania related to the same? The modern-day Europeans are not descendants of the Romani. The Romani are a small minority. They are present throughout Europe in various uh, concentrations, in, in various numbers. Some countries have more Romani. Some, country have, have, some countries have less, uh, have smaller Romani populations. But they are present throughout Europe. A great number of them are present in Romania, but the name Romania does not come from the Romani people. Okay, so the name of the country Romania is not related to the Romani people. It's just a coincidence, and it is known that about five percent of the population of Turkey is of Romani origin. They are all obviously Muslims today. They all speak Turkish in public. In private, they try to quietly practice their own culture to whatever extent they have been able to preserve it. And I would say that in Turkey, the Romani people have more freedom and rights than in Europe, which is a very paradoxical thing. In Turkey, all that matters is that no matter what ethnicity you are, as long as you say proudly that I am a Turk, as long as you speak the Turkish language, and as long as you practice their religion, which is prevalent there today, as long as you do these things, they will leave you alone. So the Romani people in Turkey enjoy a better degree of freedom than the Romanis of other countries, especially in Europe. And around at least 5% of the population of Turkey is of Romani extraction. So that's a very interesting point. Good question. Okay, I shall take one final question. For today. Okay, Jay Dikshit, you asked me a question which I did not answer apparently. You were not asking about Indo-Greeks. You were asking that are Greeks descendants of Turvashu of Chandravansh? No. The Greeks, the Hellenic people are descended from the Alina clan of the Rigvedic people of ancient India. That is what the Hellenic people are. Eventually they were called Ionians. And the word Ionian is translate is 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 pronounced as Yavana in India, that region, the Ionian Sea, that region. So the Ionian people were called Yavanas in India. So they were originally the Alina people of the Rigvedic era who went all the way westwards into Anatolia and Thrace. They were called the Ionians, and then eventually they reinvaded India much, much later and formed the Indo-Greek kingdoms, which were in, in power for a couple of centuries. So great session, my friends. It was great. It was great fun. I'm going to bring it to an end now. And I will 
see you in the next episode i will see you tomorrow at 9 pm india time thank you for participating and have a good day or good night wherever you are bye